Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Passing Shot Tennis Podcast by fans. My name's Joel Gerling. I'm Kim McKenzie. And today on The Big Debate, we're discussing the greatest players to never have won a singles Grand Slam title. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Everybody. hope you're well hope you're safe on what would have been today the very start of the french open roland garros second grand slam of the season obviously <laughs> we have no live tennis to catch up on but what me and kim have decided to do in this episode is commemorate the occasion by looking back at some of the best players to have never won a grand slam singles title and kim it's i think it's fair to say it's it's quite a lengthy list that we've we've captured and there are a few kind of surprising names bandied about isn't there yeah we've had a lot of suggestions from our listeners and followers so thank you very much for all sharing your thoughts we have had some niche suggestions thrown in as well and actually when i was sort of trying to think of players to put on these lists yeah, a lot more names came up than I was actually expecting to. Um, and I mean, really, one of the sort of questions is where do you draw the line? Like, how do you quantify, like, how many slam finals or how many other titles players had to have won or what career ranking they had to have achieved to kind of be considered good enough um, to have been capable of winning a slam? You know, is it how close they came in, in a final or? Is it just what they did in the terms of the rest of their career that you could kind of define it on? So we'll be looking into this in more detail. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite an impressive list. Uh, a lot of talent on this list and makes you realise actually how perhaps unjust sport can be when some of our favourite players never quite managed to go all the way. Exactly. And as you said, <laughs> I, you know, I could put on this list Dominic Team and Alex Zverev, but you'd think that over their career, they will at some point be able to kind of break their, their Grand Slam duck. But um, we're going to start actually with a really popular answer that it was kind of one of, the, one of the first, I think, that came into my head. It was one of the first that came into a lot of our listeners' head as well. And that player is David Nalbandian, who for me is one of those players who... Hey, you do not doubt that he had the technical ability to win a Grand Slam. It was more, I think, that injuries caught up with him. I think almost his his physical like look on a tennis court. I think you know he was quite stocky, and for me, now Bandian was one of those players where yes, he he could beat anyone on his day, but he was just almost kind of let down by injuries and. The fact that his manoeuvrability around the court wasn't wasn't the greatest. Yeah, I would agree. I think Nalvandian probably goes into the list of being too injury prone to have 
to have captured a title. It's certainly, he was around, you know, before the, the dominance of, of the big three. Um, yeah, Federer was kind of coming onto the scene, of course. But, um, you know, he was before when, you know, the era of, of Djokovic and Nadal kind of also dominating everything. Um, when you look back at what he actually achieved, it's very impressive, though. He was the um, the only Argentinian in history to reach semifinals um, at all at all slams, and I mean, even just to reach the semifinals and more at, at all the slams is is a feat in itself. And obviously, most famously, he reached the Wimbledon final in two thousand and two, losing to Leighton Hewitt, which you know, okay, this was his best opportunity to win a slam. Um, however. I think in this final, you look at the scoreline and it was so comprehensive. You think if he wasn't capable of kind of doing more on the day at such a kind of big opportunity, I don't know, there's question marks around kind of whether he really sees the moment because Leighton Hewitt beat him like 6-1, 6-3, 6-2, very straightforward scoreline. And this was a tournament actually, going back to this 2002 Wimbledon. The top 17 seeds all were knocked out before the fourth round. It was only Leighton Hewitt and Tim Henman, um, who we'll get on to later, that actually kind of came through. So you think, oh, you know, now Bandian, I don't know, I guess he, maybe him even getting to the final was a bit of a stroke of luck, given given that he was, uh, didn't, you know, he wasn't having to play top, top names to get that far. Um, so perhaps it's more of a reflection of that. Um, but yeah, certainly very consistent across the slams, get, reaching the semis of all of them. And the fact that he he was able to beat the big three as well. I mean, we sp- spoke about it in a in a recent podcast about the fact that he be- he's the only player to have beaten the big three in one tournament in um, in Madrid. I think he beat you know Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. So you know, he was able to kind of not only just do it on one occasion. He was able to kind of string great consistency across you know what you would need at a, at a grand slam across kind of two weeks it's just yeah he almost kind of fell at the, the last hurdle as you said he got to the semi-finals of or better at, at every grand slam and I think it's just a bit of a shame that he, he got so far but doesn't really have a lot to kind of show for it in terms of you know in terms of actual titles and that, that 2002 Wimbledon you look at the draw and you do think that was a kind of that was potentially could have been his moment I know kind of you know he was up against kind of the world number one you know best player at the time Leighton Hewitt but certainly you know he had a kind of a, a sort of easy-ish draw to get to the final to go out so comprehensively was almost kind of a bit of a shame on, on his part yeah I mean apart from that I suppose yeah when when he won Madrid beating you know the top three um the big three rather that you know that was kind of the peak that was when he was number three that was his career high ranking so 2006 um he actually reached two semis at slams that year that's probably his his peak I suppose um whereas the Wimbledon final came when he was still relatively young um I suppose and not quite so highly ranked but I think perhaps yeah he didn't get that grand slam final moment at the the, the right time in his career perhaps so it's also a question of timing but he really reminds me of another player that was very uh popular with our listeners perhaps the most popular suggestion of all, which is David Ferrer, of course. Um, probably, I mean, Ferrer's a tricky one. You know, he's such a hardworking player and so consistent, just absolutely kind of up there. You know, again, he, apart from Wimbledon, he reached um, the slam, sorry, the semis or or further at all the slams. Um, 
including obviously the Roland Garros final in 2013. But also he made four semifinals on hard courts. And for Ferrer, you know, initially people thought of him just as a clay quarter. So for him to have adapted his game and done so well on hard courts and gone deep into, um, you know, at both the AO and the US Open, very impressive. He won titles at all other levels um, except for the slams. And in terms of looking at his match wins just on the tour, he... I think he's got the record, actually, for having won the most matches um, on the ATP Tour without having won a Grand Slam. So perhaps statistically, it's David Ferrer that will be our top dog on this list today, Joel. <laughs> yeah, and I think he he's one of those players who, unfortunately, he's he's been playing tennis at a time where, you know, you've had Federer, you've had Nadal, you've had Djokovic. And as a result, you'd think that if those three hadn't existed in another alternate universe, he would have been able to probably win multiple Grand Slams because, you know, him on a clay court, he's an absolutely kind of fantastic player. And he, he for me, is almost kind of the opposite to Nalbandian in the sense that he got every single ounce out of his talent and his, and his ability as possible. Whereas Nalbandian, I think, was more of a, still think there was a little bit left in the tank at the kind of the end of his career. But I think with Ferrer, it's like, he's not going to die wondering, is he? Or he didn't retire, he didn't retire kind of open questions. I think, you know, he gave it his all. No one could deny him that. And it got him that far, unfortunately. And I think just more unluckily, it's just that it was in an era where, he had other players that were, you know, just a little bit better than him. I agree. I think if I was going to be a tennis player myself and retire, I think I'd want to have been a David Ferrer where you'd sort of done everything you could and achieved kind of your maximum. And it wasn't any any fault of your own, perhaps, that you couldn't get over the final hurdle. It was just because of the dominance of the big three, rather than being, I don't know, a player who had match points in a final and collapsed <laughs> mentally. I think that would be so much harder to deal with. So yeah, I think I'd want to to go down the Ferrari. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because a, a player like that is Guillermo Correa, another player who, you know, never never won a Grand Slam. He had that final against Gaston Gaudio where he was two sets up, you know, six love, six three. And you know, he lost it eight six in in the fifth set, and you know for me, yeah, as you said, that is a, that is a sort of that is an experience you don't want to kind of you know live with because you you know you were there, you can always kind of put your hands on the trophy, and unfortunately, you know it didn't happen. And you know, Coria was an excellent clay court player, and I actually think for me, he was you know he was actually better, I think, than like and David Ferrer, and he could he could beat Rafael Nadal, and I think there was an opportunity for him just before Nadal came onto the scene, perhaps to to win one French Open. And it was that one, you know, against Gaudio. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah, again, it just didn't, it just didn't happen. But he, he had the, he definitely had the opportunity to do it. Yeah, I think um, he just rued that match for the rest of his life. I don't think he was ever quite the same afterwards. Um, that was his one golden moment. And and obviously then, you know, the next, like however many years is just Rafa, Roland Garros, you know, he, he wasn't able to get a, a, a word in. But yeah, having had, you know, championship points in that final and then to have lost, actually until Federer last year, he was the only uh, male player in the open era to have, have achieved that of having had uh, match points in a slam final and then lost. So only oh, a couple of times. It's the stuff, <laughs> it stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Especially for someone like Roger Federer, obviously you've got the the cushioning of the blow of the fact that, you know, I've got loads of grand slam titles already. But, you know, with someone like Corrier, you know, that it was his moment. He didn't take it. 
and he's you know he's now having to to live with that and if you kind of think about all these sort of um you know moments that almost kind of players have been robbed of if we do kind of think about coming forward to you know the most recent era kind of in terms of the the big three the big four those players have meant that you know a lot of players have always been playing in their shadow when it comes to, to grand slams and you know there's a lot of people you know in this category uh our listeners are kind of right to kind of pick up on you know players like david Ferrer, but also players like joe wilfried songer and thomas burditch who again are fantastic players yeah you okay know, I, was, I was let's just kind of talk about Songa because i was doing a bit of research and i forgot how many semi-finals that he got to as a, as a you know at a grand slam level of course he got to the you know the final of the i think the australian open in 2008 as well but he was a he was a great player and you again you think maybe a little bit like now bandian if injuries hadn't taken you know the, such a toll on him potentially he could have got over the got over the line yeah I also was surprised at how I'd forgotten how good Songa had been um especially yeah 2008 Australian Open final he took that the first set in that final and that was actually the only set Djokovic dropped during the tournament I think most people actually remember the semi that he played against Rafa in that tournament where he kind of destroyed him and uh, everyone was like whoa who is this guy but actually, you know, a couple of years later, he, you know, he made the semis at Wimbledon twice. He's made the French Open semis twice, which actually for a French player at Roland Garros, you know, you know, they have such a lot of pressure on them. So that all, almost makes it all the more impressive that he he went deep, you know, there twice. Um, three quarters at the US. So, you know, and a player who's managed to go deep at, at all the slams and um, obviously he's picked up a couple of Masters titles as well. And, and actually... Um, you know, here's a really interesting stat for you, Joel, um, which perhaps a lot of people won't won't realise. Um, he is actually one of the only players to have beaten the big four in in a Grand Slam. So across all, all the Grand Slams, he has managed to defeat, you know, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic and Murray at one time um, or more at um, each, well, across the four slams. So a very impressive stat alone. I think that's what makes it so much more frustrating. It's like, you know, I've been a Grand Slam tournament and I've just beaten, you know, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, you know, whoever, and then I'm not I've not gone on to go to go and win it. And I feel like that's a sort of you know, the thing that is frustrating, I guess, for these sorts of players who are living in the shadow of the big three in this most recent era is the fact that it's not just enough to beat one of them. They're probably gonna have to do it multiple times maybe even consecutively across you know best of five format and that's almost that has been insurmountable and you know just very quickly on Songa when he did get to when he did get to the the 2008 Australian Open final he was the only player to take a set off Djokovic I think in that tournament in the final so you know he was playing at a really really high standard uh the match I actually remember is he beat Andy Murray I think in the in one of the earlier rounds so you know, he beat Andy Murray, he beat Nadal. You're not going to hold that against him if, you know, he takes a set off Djokovic, but is not able to, you know, get over the line because Djokovic and the Australian Open is just like, they go part and parcel with each other. Yeah, and also, um, you know, the fact that, yeah, he was able to defeat, you know, one of the big three or big four in a slam and then just not follow that up. Obviously, we've seen that happen with a lot of players. Um, it's the consistency and the kind of ability to actually put those performances in you know round by round to actually get to you know the final and then win that that's the difference really isn't it um but another player that I guess falls foul of that is Thomas Burditch um you know his his only slam final was back at 
2010 Wimbledon. But to get there, he'd beaten Federer in the quarters and then uh, Novak in the semis. Um, but then he wasn't quite able to to go all the way and defeat all three because uh, he lost to Rafa in the final. Um, but Burdich, again, very, very consistent. He has reached the semifinals of all four Grand Slams um, and obviously that Wimbledon final. So very impressive statistics in terms of going deep across all surfaces. And um, he is also another player that has managed to beat the big four have wins against the big four at all the slams. And actually, um, I think him and Nalbandian are the only players to have beaten Federer um, at slam level on multiple occasions uh, before the semi-final stage. So in earlier rounds of the tournament, um, which is also another, you know, impressive, impressive fact. He is a funny one because I think the the thing we think about Burdich is he has a terrible head-to-head record like overall against the the big three and we and I know kind of in like latter years you know we've already we've always kind of thought whenever there's a matchup between Burdich and you know whoever it is from the big three it's just kind of going to be a cakewalk or you know straight sets but you forget like you know back you know back in kind of you know 2010 2011 you know he was a real kind of threat and at the time you know you, you felt like he was always capable of an upset it was just whether he could kind of maximize and capitalize you know if that did happen to kind of go and win the tournament and again you kind of look at that 2010 Wimbledon the fact that he was able to go back to back and defeat Federer in the quarters then Djokovic in the semi-finals I mean that is that's impressive enough I mean I know that's not gonna you know that's not a title but the fact that he's been able to do that can't be many players who've been able been able to do in consecutive rounds two of the two of the big 3 in in best of 5 yeah i think the only other player that really comes to mind is is stan obviously who's got wins against um you know the big 4 at all the slams as well um and obviously he's gone to win win three slam titles, so he's very much not on this list. But um, he could very well have been part of this list, I suppose. You know, it's the same era of players. And I'm guessing the Songers and the Burditches of the world kind of wish they were actually the Stan Wawrinkas of the world in the fact that they would, would have managed to get over the line a couple of times. Um, but other other players of this vein, which many of our listeners have, have suggested as well, uh, perhaps not quite as as consistent or perhaps haven't haven't reached quite as many uh slam semis or or finals or whatever um you know Kane Ishikori um you know he reached that US Open final back in 2014 against Chilich um who obviously captured his his one and only slam and um, in a way you know yes he's reached a slam final is it more annoying to have then reached a slam final and not come up against the big 3 where you would have had you know less chance of, of winning but and to come up against Chilich, who's also in I don't know if that, at that point it was Chilich's maiden slam final I think it might have been because obviously he has reached more since then and you're both kind of going for your first slam title and then you're the one that doesn't win is that was that more annoying when you sort of look back on your career I wonder because you might have had more of a chance <laughs> yeah. definitely I think there's uh I definitely think that's uh uh, you know, if it, it will feel like a little bit of the the door is o- the door is open there, p- particularly because of the you know the dominance of the big three. When you don't have to see them in the final, it's a bit of a it's almost kind of a bit of a boost when I guess when you kind of step on court. And another player I kind of think about that in terms of, of uh, particularly at Wimbledon is uh, Milos Ranić, who you know got to the final against Andy Murray. And you know, I get he of course was was playing Andy Murray in front of a British crowd, and you know he lost in I think well he lost in straight sets, and there were you know a few tie breaks in there. But again, another player who would have thought, you know, with a big 
with big booming serve, great kind of skills at the net on a grass court. Again, you would think that he could he could potentially be a Wimbledon champion. And, you know, I know there's kind of talk around, or you know, the grass courts at Wimbledon have got slower over the years, but you do wonder if someone like, a, you know, Raonic, if he was in the Wimbledon of the 90s where kind of serve and volley dominated, maybe, you know, if he was playing in that, in that era or in that phase of, of, of tennis, he, he wouldn't be talked about as a, you know, a, again, a player who, you know, wasn't able to kind of get his kind of foot over the line in terms of winning a Grand Slam. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because there is definitely a case of players just being around at the wrong time, you know, wrong era. Um, And if it had been 20 years earlier, they would have excelled and achieved a lot more. And it's just kind of the circumstances in which you find yourself in. Um, But yes, totally. Raonic, um, a lot of people also were uh, kind of going down the Grigor Dimitrov route when obviously there is still technically time for him to win a slam. But, you know, he got to he's got to three semifinals so far. But, you know, he has won the World Tour Finals. We know he's very talented, but I I feel like the luck, the jury might be out on that one. What about Dominic Team and Alex Verev, genuinely? Because, you know, I, I... I think like, you know, we've, we've just spoken about, you know, the Burditches and the Raniches and the Songas. And yeah, I know a lot of kind of the tennis media, you know, almost kind of class them as like the, you know, the forgotten generation because of the, the achievements of the big three. And is there a possibility at the moment? I'm not saying it's going to happen, but, you know, you have to think there is a possibility at the moment that Team and Zverev, if or the longer it goes on, that they don't win a Grand Slam because... Federer, Nadal and Djokovic are, you know, are still winning, going, you know, going into their late 30s. There is a possibility they could also become, I guess, part of that forgotten generation, maybe, or like forgotten generation part, part two. Yeah, I think um, it, they're, they're sort of on the borderline, aren't they? It's interesting. But I mean, I wouldn't put, you know, at the moment, obviously, I wouldn't put uh, Zverev in the same category as no, Frere because he's only reached, you know, like one slam semi. But let's do this conversation in five, six years' time and we'll see. <laughs> um, but, I, hope I, mean, the, I hope they're not on the list. But, yeah, uh, let, let's yeah. hope that um, they've managed to break that duck. Um, but, I mean, also Sitsipas, I guess, and Medvedev could, could go in that in that group as well. Um, just some other suggestions from listeners. I think Richard Gasquet was mentioned. Um he reached three slam semis, you know, I never, I never was confident that the Gasquet would, you know, mentally be able to kind of go all the way, but um, perhaps in another generation, I, I like this suggestion. Uh, Fernando Vadasco obviously reached that, that famous Australian open semi-final where he lost to Rafa. Actually, I, I asked my brother um, who he would put on the system. Vadasco was one of the names that he, he actually came up with. Um, I would have loved to have seen Vadasco, uh, get a slam but not in not in that particular tournament because obviously that would have denied rapper <laughs> a career slam he would never have won the AA perhaps um Tommy Haas is another suggestion I thought this was a really good one actually often forgotten about but he reached four four semis and obviously was ranked number two in the world at, at one point you know so on his day he was a very very competent player um definitely always quite likable um so yeah, a lot of other suggestions. I think we also had perhaps a bit more rogue, a Xavier Melise shout out uh, today. He got to the semi-finals at Wimbledon, and he came up against Albanian in that in that two thousand two one when the the top half yeah was it went to it went to form and it was Hewitt versus Henman. I think it was 
number one seed versus number four seed. But yeah, the bottom half was completely open. So, you know, who knows? Melise might have felt that that was, you know, that was his chance when you know he came up against now Bandian in the semis. And I think it, I think it did go to five sets, actually. So I think it's, there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of players. And for some reason, it feels like, you know, a lot of these maybe moments come at Wimbledon. And I think one of the most kind of, famous examples of that and you know one for of course for British fans is is Tim Henman who got to four Wimbledon semi-finals you know we all remember that classic one as British fans um against Goran Ivanisevic where you know it was over two days he felt like he was going to win and then rain came down there was no roof and Ivanisevic went on to beat Pat Rafter in in the final and yeah as I said he was I think Henman it's almost kind of like very consistent player, very consistent at grandstands, had a great kind of grass court record at Wimbledon, but he just came up, you know, you felt that was the moment. You you know, he came up, I think, in other times against, you know, Hewitt, who was, you know, world number one at the time. And, you know, it just wasn't, it was just another level that was a bit beyond him, even with the British crowd behind him. But you did felt that even Isovic match, it was just, it was just so close. He was two points away from from reaching oh, no. the final. <laughs> it's like the collective, you know, pain of a nation. Um, I mean, my childhood memories, Wimbledon revolve around Tim Henman. I can tell you. Um, I mean, those those are absolute classic days for British tennis fans. But yeah, I mean, Tim Henman overall reached you know six uh, Slam semis. You know, he was number four in the world like he was right up there for several several years like I think you do forget yeah you know, now we've had Andy Murray we do forget actually Tim Hemmer wasn't wasn't too bad himself he actually I remember the French Open semi-final because he played I'm pretty sure he played Coria and took the first set took the first set from him and I was thinking oh hang on where's this <laughs> where's this going but uh yeah, he was a you know he was very handy. Obviously, a very handy grass court player, but he was he was definitely very good. Uh, you know, for a time on clay court and, and hard court as well. Tiger Tim, yeah. Um, <laughs> we also had obviously Greg Rosetsky, who arguably went closest because he reached the final of the U.S. Open in was it ninety seven. Um, so I don't know. Do you do you say that Greg came closest because he actually got to a final? But you know, if you look at his other slams, he didn't. He didn't get to um, a semi. He reached the course at Wimbledon, but apart from that, it was kind of fourth round. Uh, the other two slams. So, who would you rather have been? Would you have rather have got to a final, or would you rather have consistently got to like six semis? That's a good question. I think one for our listeners as well. Would Would you have rather had like a Tim Henman career when you got to, you know, you did very well to get to kind of six semi-finals, but no final appearance, or yeah, you know, Greg Rosetsky where he got to the final of the US Open. I personally, I would go, I would still have, I still think I would have Tim Henman's career just for, I would have consistency over flash in the pan sort of moments, which I feel kind of with a bit more with Greg Rosetsky. And I know that final for the US Open came in, you know, 1997, but that was almost, he, he still had a lot of his career to go. Whereas I felt kind of Henman was able to kind of sustain it across good kind of chunk of time. As I said, Wimbledon, he got to four semi-finals in five years with the pressure of the British public. I think that is a, 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 fa- a fantastic achievement. Absolutely. I mean, just throwing this into Greg Rosetsky's case, uh, he he actually won more career titles overall, got four more than Henman, and in, including a win at the Grand Slam Cup, which um, I'm never quite sure about that event. It wasn't. It wasn't. Was it? It's Is not the, the World Tour Final. Yeah, I I'm not entirely sure. Um, it's slightly Grand before Slam my time. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I don't know. But um, yeah, that's a debate, you know, Tim or Greg. But in- interestingly, they have the same birthday. I know that's got nothing to do with this, but they're both <laughs> born on the same day. I find is quite funny. Um, but let's go back a bit to to kind of that era, because another popular suggestion was Marcelo Rios. Um who was was a world number one, um, reached the Australian Open final in 98, which was his only slam final. He lost to Petter Corder in straight sets. Um, this was really the year that he was kind of kind of at the peak, you know, reached number one in the world and had that slam final. But it kind of all went a bit downhill. He struggled with a lot of injuries. He, he fired um, Larry Stefanke, who he was working with at the time. He fired him. Um, in that year after becoming world number one so I don't know if they weren't getting on what was what was happening with that but I think after that it kind of never quite reached the same um the same form as as kind of 97 98 um but I guess because he was world number one a lot of people you know mentioned his name to us um as being one of those players they always thought really had the talent to go all the way Oh, you look at a player like Rios, and I think you know it's it's certainly a question I think uh, for the, the the women as well, which we'll, we'll get on to. But Kim, tight. I think there's like this kind of debate, obviously, between would you rather have a Grand Slam title, or would you rather have you know have the number one ranking? And I don't know. For me, it feels like you'd rather have a title than be called number world number one in the in the world. And I wonder if you ask Marcelo Rios this question, you know, would you? Would you have? Would you prefer to have had one? You know, the Aust- Australian Open when you're in the final in, in 1998, versus get getting to to world number one for 18 weeks or or whatever, it, or however long it was. Um, I think yeah, that's almost kind of like a question because I think yeah, you know, maybe some players almost kind of focus on the rankings, maybe actually a bit too much, and it's actually almost like a detriment perhaps to performance. You know, in grand in grand slam events. Yeah, for me, I mean, I think I would certainly take a Grand Slam title over the world number one ranking. Um, but yeah, some pay- some players might not think of it that way. Um, they might want consistency um, and they might want just kind of, I don't know, I'm not sure. It, it depends on their motivations. But I think nine times out of 10, they would say, you know, a Slam title. You would expect, you know, the glory that, you know, and just having your name in the history books, you know, um, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily remember a player who was number one for, well, I think Rios was actually only number one for six weeks, which is a very short amount of time. I mean, he won, he won a lot of Masters events. He won, you know, he did the Sunshine Double. Um, he was the first player to win all three of the Clay Court Masters series um, events at that time. Um, so, you know, he was really on fire and I guess uh, yeah that's why a lot of people thought yeah he really should should go all the way but I think injuries played him and from the looks of it he he had quite a a interesting off-court life as well a lot of stuff going on so perhaps that that was really the thing that uh, held him back most Um, but other players uh, we had a lot of suggestions um, for Miroslav Messier Messier. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly Um, but he Gosh, he reached two slam finals, both times losing to Lendl. Um, but he won the gold at the Olympics in 88. Um, he reached the semi-finals of the French Open and Wimbledon, um, finals at the other two slams. So, again, a pretty accomplished player. Um, he's not a name that I'm really that familiar with, to be honest with you. But when you <laughs> no, look at I him... Had, I had not heard of him. <laughs> I had not heard of him until our listeners kind of 
for suggesting his name. Yeah. I, I, was, I was researching him. And I, li- I like the fact that his nickname was the Big Cat <laughs> for his uh, his quickness around court. Um, but yeah, it sounds like from from what I was reading, he really had uh, a thing in for Swedish players. He, apparently, he had Mats Villander's number, um, and was the reason Villander didn't, I think, win all four grand slams in a row or, so, or something something like that he he beat him in like a wimbledon quarterfinal in in straight sets um so it, it's obviously clear that he was a very yeah, very very good player obviously a bit, a bit before my time but um you know the, if you're getting to multiple finals and not you know not winning the more and that goes on yeah i think andy murray would probably relate it's kind of like oh is this happening is this not happening you know you want to break your duck sooner rather than later don't you yeah another player that could go on that list todd, todd martin he reached two slam finals um a couple of wimbledon semis as well in the 90s interestingly i was looking at, at some of those matches where he you know he, was, he came close and um you know he lost to um sampras and agassi in, in his slam finals but in Wimbledon 96, he got to the semis and had this absolute ding-dong with uh, Malivai Washington. Um, he lost 10-8 in the fifth set, but he was Todd Martin was 5-1 up in the final set and served for the match twice. Um, and then he absolutely choked. So perhaps it was mental uh, strength that held that held him back. But, you know, you look at these those individual matches and you think, oh... You know, it's a bit like Joe Conter against Marquesa von Drusova in the semis last year. You think, oh, what could have been? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's a whole host of players. We could go on and on. Just going to shout out a few few more names before we go for a quick break. Uh, Mark Philippoussis, obviously two slam finals there, um, including 2003. Obviously, Federer nipped that one in the bud. Uh, Thomas Engfist, um, Possibly, actually, you know, a Swedish player that is often forgotten about, um, but uh, lost a, was it the 99 AO final to Kafelnikov was his kind of golden moment. Henri Leconte, he never won a slam singles title. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, he's obviously doing the rounds now on all the... Uh, so the the old uh, Masters um, Champions Tour, you know, so you know you always see him doing like a lot of entertaining, uh, you know, doubles and what have you. Fernando Gonzalez, he reached um, the AO final, didn't he, back in 07 and obviously won the no, he didn't win the Olympics, did he? He came, he got silver in the Olympics, but he won the doubles, um, didn't he, in the Olympics? So yeah, a whole load of other players. So thank you to everyone for. Suggestions. Oh, we also, oh, just two more names. Alex Karetcha, um got to two stand finals. And Guy Forget, another another player who uh, never quite managed to get over the line. Um, but yes, lots of food for thought there, Joel. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to discuss it all over again on the women's side. Okay, we're back and we're now going to look at some of the women's players from the WTA Tour who are in that category of really good players, but never quite managed to to win a Grand Slam. And again, I think we're going to start with the most popular answer. And um, this actually wasn't a player that was kind of straight you know, to the to the top of my mind, but kind of listeners were definitely very vocal uh, about this player and the fact that, you know, she was almost kind of criminally, um, criminally, wasn't uh didn't get a, a grand slam title in her career and that is aga radvanska who again for me was a player who was very consistent but she didn't really have like a big weapon and almost her of her game was based more on like 
her defensive prowess and almost I think what almost kind of did her in was the fact that when she came up against players who were kind of very attacking or you know were having one of those days she was almost kind of powerless to stop it yeah I agree I think um, a classic case in point would be the the one slam final that Ravanska did reach which was the Wimbledon final in 2012 she faced Serena Williams you know Ravanska didn't sort of put in a bad performance um you know she forced a deciding set um so wasn't a route by any means but you know Serena was just too much for her she was too too attacking she just kind of leapt on on Radvanska's second serve and Radvanska just yeah just didn't have that kind of killer ability or or shot to really to make a massive difference at such a you know deep um level of or level of a slam she was just for me a player that got a lot of balls back and scrambled around and defended and was very nimble um good movement but just wasn't aggressive enough to kind of really take it to two other players I mean she she had four semi-finals under her belt um quarterfinals quite quite a lot of them so she was very consistent but uh just for me you know she is a fan favorite I think you know she's very well liked off the court and I'm sure that's a lot of people obviously said said to her um as a suggestion to us and you know she was number two in the world she won 20 career titles but yeah for me not a player that I would immediately have thought of but I think worthy enough certainly to be on the list I think if she hadn't have come up against Serena Williams that day yes perhaps it would have been a different story and she would be a slam winner yeah and it feels like you know like the you know the big three there's certainly a group of players I think that were kind of you know in this time period when unfortunately in Serena Williams's shadow and another another player I'd kind of put into that kind of category like Radvanska of very kind of consistent but I just didn't think had like a weapon that you know you would say could win a Grand Slam was Elena Dementieva who again was a, a very good a very good player um you know I think she reached nine Grand Slam semi-finals over you know a decade you know, when she was playing, but again, she just was, I just don't think she had the the tools really to kind of ensure that she could, you know, actually win the whole, like win the whole thing. Um, and I'm actually kind of surprised actually, because she, she got to the final uh, at the French Open in 2004. She beat quite, you know, she beat some fairly decent players along the way. She beat Davenport and Maresmo in front of a French crowd, obviously, but then lost to Miskina 6-1-6-2. So, you know, again, I think like one of her, someone like Dementieva, it's like, I don't think she had the weapons, but I think also she potentially went missing on court at, at moments when, you know, it was, it was critical. She was, you know, she, you know, didn't, didn't go walk, walk about. Yeah. My memories of Dementieva is that her serve was very dodgy at times. <laughs> slice. <laughs> it was so slice, hairy orientated, wasn't it? And her mum was always, I, I think her mum was her coach and her mum was always in the crowd, like, I don't know, just chewing on her fingernails, looking like absolutely panicked and so anxious watching her daughter. And um, that can't have been very helpful. But uh, yeah, I think she pretty much collapsed in that French Open final against Mesquina, who is is a name that, you know, you sort of forget has actually won a slam. And then Dementieva actually also, I think it was the same year, reached the US Open final, lost to Kuznetsova. Uh, so again, a player that was very consistent, you know, she was world number three. She reached the semis or more at all the slams. And 
but just couldn't couldn't get over the finish line. And I think really, yeah, it was her mental kind of the mental side of things that really held her back. But just looking over her stats, you know, she was a very decent player and and very consistent. Um, you know, she was part of the, one of those like Russian players at the time. They were you know were very very dominant. Uh, it was really their their era, and uh, she certainly was one of them at, at the forefront. But she'd never never got over the final line. I mean, just looking at her career record, 576 wins to 273 losses. So you're almost kind of surprised she didn't get to world to world number one because, you know, she uh, you know, had a very, very decent track record. But uh, yeah, obviously, she just was a little bit more limited, I think, when she came to, to Graham Sam's, but obviously very consistent. The fact that she got to the semifinals of better at all four shows you that I think almost she was a better tour player than maybe like like one grand slam where you could hang your hat on and say, right, this is her moment. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, a tall player. <laughs> um, and I mean, another Russian player who actually did get to world number one, and this was probably the most popular suggestion, one, one of them, apart from Radvanska, um, from our listeners, was Dinara Safina, who we talked about recently when we were doing our like Madrid kind of memories uh, pod you know Safina three slam finals uh, losing them all in in straight sets but you know at this period of time so 2008 through to 2009 this was really her golden her golden years you know basically in the space of just over a year she reached three slam finals um, you know got to world number one and I mean the most kind of angsty one of all was I guess the 2009 French Open where she just steamrolled her way through the tournament um dropping like minimal games and then you know got to the final played uh Kuznetsova and just just couldn't perform her serve just was so off she double faulted on match point and again Kuznetsova has won two slams against uh you know one against Savina, one against Dementieva, that perhaps she she may not have won. But obviously, it just shows because Netzva was not the one to crumble and the others were. Um, but for me, Safina, like she, Safina was a player that I was really willing to get over the finish line. I think I'm, this is the player I'm most frustrated that didn't manage to actually get a slam. Yeah, because you look at, you compare her to, you know, someone like Dementieva or, or Radvanska. I actually think she had the tools. She had the weapons, uh, you know, to win a Grand Slam. She, you know, her, you know, I always kind of associate Safina with kind of power hitting and, you know, big ground strokes. But I think almost kind of, you know, the issue that she had was like when she was up against players who were able to kind of almost kind of take that time or you know way that she had you know even when she was kind of winding up for her ground strokes she didn't really have like a almost kind of like a pal a plan b it was almost kind of like power power or nothing and and i think almost kind of like this is potentially what you know the, the problem serena williams is facing at the moment is that you know if i'm if i'm facing someone at the you know the opposite end of the net someone like you know simona hallett who can deal with my power what else can i offer and i think that's that's for me is where Safina kind of came a cropper in that she she didn't really have like almost kind of like a, an alternative strategy to, you know, adapt when, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't going right for her. And I think that almost kind of meant that almost the fact that she didn't really have like a mind multidimensional approach meant she wasn't able to, to, to win a, to capture a grand slam title. Yeah. And also I feel like Safina, you know, when she was kind of working her way up to the world number one ranking, you know, say 2008 French Open, she came back a lot from from losing positions in matches. I think most notably she came back against Sharapova 
Um, and I just remember, yeah, run of maybe three matches in a row when she was like down and kind of came back and perhaps she just naturally felt more comfortable being in, you know, um, the position of, of being the hunter rather than the hunted. I just felt she felt more comfortable being the chaser. Um, and then, you know, you can kind of tell when she got to number one and the pressure was on, that's when she sort of deteriorated and then uh, sadly i think really injury she struggled with a back injury for a number of years yeah. after this yeah, she kind retired, of period it robbed her really yeah it really it robbed did. her really of her of, of potentially more moments to, to exactly. get to grand Slam finals because who would have who you know she might have had a, a renaissance a couple of years later and, and come back and maybe finally got over the finish line you know much like wozniaki did so it's a shame that yeah i feel like her career was um Rob, you know, it was unfair, like ended too soon. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I was just, I remember being quite a big fan of her at the time. So I, for me, this is the player that I'm just, uh, you know. But another player that was world number one that didn't also win a slam um, was Yelena Yankovic. Um, so these two players, um, along with, I guess, Pliskova, have been number one, but no slams to their name. Um, with Yankovic, I mean, she reached one slam final, which was the US Open in 2008, but she, you know, was playing Serena and lost in straight sets. Kind of, she didn't really, I don't remember it being like a mental collapse from Jankovic, but I, I certainly don't think she, she didn't really have the game that she could impose on anyone. She was far too defensive, which for me is the, the main reason why she never got over the finish line and, and slams, you know, she reached a couple of semis, but. <sighs> I guess she's most famous for the mixed doubles of Jamie Murray, but and I just yeah, singles player. She just for me never had that that killer punch that would. I always felt that whenever she stepped on court, she could combust at like any moment. I know <laughs> my like memories of her just her looking to her crowd box and uh, sorry her player box and just kind of chatting at them or shouting at them or you know it always felt that she was playing like the game on the tennis court, but also a game with her, um, with her player box as well. And I think that almost kind of, I think that mentally for me was the reason that kind of held her back in terms of, um, you know, winning a, a you know, having a kind of a, a champion championship kind of mentality is that I think she just got a bit too um, emotional too often. And that was, you know, had almost kind of like too much like negative energy that meant that she was kind of distracting herself and it led to the sort of these kind of you know capitulations or losses where you know you'd think that she would you know she would have she should have won um but um yeah i think she's i mean she's still uh she's still she was still a very good player and i think that i think what's interesting to note because you know a lot of other kind of women's players, I think, in this time period, the fact that they didn't win a Grand Slam might have just been due to kind of Serena Williams. But yeah, Jankovic actually had a pretty good record against uh, against Serena, who um, I think she held at least four wins over her. So I don't think kind of, you know, that was almost kind of the issue where I think it was, um, I think that was the issue for a lot, a lot more other players. Yeah, she knew she could beat um, Serena a bit, a bit like Azarenka, I suppose. She's another player, I think, that's got perhaps more wins over Serena than the other way around. I think, yeah, Yankovic is very melodramatic. I think she loved the drama, and yeah, she would suddenly, you know, sort of flip in a match and get all angry. And I think, you know, she was a very feisty player, and I think that, yeah, that held her back. And I think she just needed to put more aggression, uh, more attacking. Uh, you know, more attack into her game. And for me, yeah, she just didn't quite, maybe I think in, a, in another era, 
you know, if Serena hadn't have been there perhaps or I don't know, it's very, yeah, she's just one of those players that I think she's a bit like the David Ferrer for me, I suppose. Um, very consistent, went deep at, you know, most of the slams and well, she actually reached world number one, but just couldn't couldn't put it all together and and now she's she hasn't officially retired actually but she she's not ranked she's had a lot of surgery is that right she's okay. not officially announcing a thing but she's not maybe she can know. come back yeah because some of these some of these players are still i think you know i think i was actually looking safina the other day is only i think 31 i mean i know she's got like a load of injuries probably but oh no or oh, sorry radvanska i think is only 31 and you think about you know some of the comebacks that are happening on the tour uh you know like Kim Kleisters, for example, you do wonder if some of these players, I'm not saying could break their Grand Slam duck, but certainly could, <laughs> yeah, you know, well, might, why might not? Have some sort of rogue um, announce, you know, shock announcement about coming back to to a tennis court. Jankovic probably one of those players I'd love to see back on a tennis court, but uh, yeah, certainly Brad Vanska I'd put in that uh, category as well. A couple of other players that we have uh, on, on the women's list, as you said, Pliskova. Now, I think Pliskova is almost kind of the opposite in that she's got a great serve, but that's about it. And, you know, if her serve falters, which it likely might, will do um, across kind of two weeks, then I, I don't think she's got the game at the moment in order to win a Grand Slam. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it's fair to say. I was just thinking if you could fuse together Pliskova and Jankovic, I think what Pliskova is lacking is a bit of that drive and energy and almost I feel like she needs to get a bit feisty and angry on court and to kind of show a bit more purpose. I feel like when I watch her, she doesn't get sufficiently like energised into the match. She's quite like separated from it emotionally perhaps and I feel like if Jankovic could like send over some of her energy to Pliskova um or if Pliskova could give Jankovic her surf like maybe the two of them together blended would have been would 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 create kind of the the best mix I, I don't know I mean Pliskova I think there's still plenty of time for her to break her duck you know she reached the US Open final back in 2016 she reached a couple of semis since then but if she goes out early in the slam, no one's surprised. And that is really not what you want when you've been world number one. Um, and, you know, she's very consistent on the tour. You know, she's won a lot of premier titles. Um, but what is going to be the thing that gets her over the edge? Uh, perhaps she can find that during lockdown and she'll come back and have a renaissance. Uh, but yeah, another player actually that I think retired too young due to injury was Vera Zvonareva. Do you remember much of her, Joel? She oh, actually reached yeah, two slam finals. I remember the Wimbledon final um, that she reached. I think she lost to Serena or possibly Venus. I think it was Serena. Um, but she also reached the US Open that year as well, 2010. Um, she was number two um, at that time. That was her kind of peak. But I think she she again was struggling with, with injuries. And I don't think she's that old. I think she could still, if she was able to, she, she could make a comeback a bit like Kleister's. But... Um, another player, you know, that that could well have, have gone all the way. I think Nadia Petrova as well was another Russian player that got very high in the rankings, but never... Literally, Kim, as you as you said, Zvonareva, <laughs> I did search Nadia Petrova on Google because oh, right. I would, as I, said, I, I put those two in the same, in the same sort of bracket. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking yeah. actually at Petrova's Grand Slam results. She got to, she got to the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, Wimbledon and US Open 
on two occasions uh, for each of them. And then she got to the semifinals of the French Open on two occasions as well. So very consistent. Um, and uh, yeah, she won the tour. She won. What, what am I just looking at? Um, yeah, I mean, she was a very kind of consistent player and. I feel like there was a time when kind of like Russian tennis was really in its heyday with Zvonareva, Petrova, you know, Sharapova, obviously. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a time where you, you would have thought actually Zvonareva and Petrova, you would have thought they were more likely Grand Slam candidates than, than Mesquina. Exactly. I think, I think maybe this is a, um, food for thought for another podcast we could do is like slam winners who kind of, how did that happen? You know, they got a slam and you think, really? Like just surprise, surprise slam winners, perhaps. Um, that would be a, a topic we could, we could discuss in the future. Um, but yeah, that generation, I think maybe, yeah, Serena, Sharapova, but they, maybe they're a bit sort of up against, up against them, but there was certainly room for them to, to come through. But for various reasons, it, it didn't happen. Uh, if we look a bit further back, uh, a player that was mentioned quite a lot by our listeners was, um, Helena Sukova or, Sukova, I'm not. I'm never quite sure if I'm saying uh, the names correctly. Now, she um, was a player that was around in the 80s. I don't know too much about her, slightly before my time. But if you look at her record, she reached four slam finals um, and also a lot of quarterfinals, loads of loads at Wimbledon, um, four slam finals at the Australian Open and the US Open, uh, two apiece, also reached the semis at the French. Um, I think in all of those slam finals, it was like Chris Ever, Navratilova or Steffi Graf who beat her. So she she wasn't losing to um, one-hit wonders by any means. But yeah, I um, big shout out to her because uh, she was a very solid player who who never managed to go all the way back in the 80s. And she was very, very handy doubles player i think she won i'm just thinking her results she won all the uh ladies doubles and mixed doubles grand slam titles for all four grand slams apart from the australian open mixed doubles um so it, it shows you i think uh, some i think for like in in at some times if you're going further back you know being a, a accomplished doubles doubles player it could pay real dividends in singles as well. And the fact that she got to four singles finals as well as being a really, a really, really solid, really strong uh, doubles player, it just shows you that you can, I guess you can, you can do both, but put yourself up against some of the greats of the game on a, on a singles court. It's a, you know, it's a very, a very tough prospect, a very tall order to, to come, you know, to come away and, you know, beat, beat Martina Navratilova or, or Steffi Graf or, or whoever it is. I think also the, the good thing about doubles is that a lot of players, who weren't able to win a single slam were able to kind of focus on doubles and and were very very successful and won multiple you know slams in doubles so you know we're very much just focusing on singles slams here obviously a lot of these players have have won double slams including Safina actually she she won a ladies doubles at I think the US Open but I mean Pam Shriver is is a another player I you know you could put out there she um, was up against, you know, Navratilova and, and Ever, and she got to, I think, just the one final at the US Open, um, lost to Navratilova. But, you know, she was a player that went on to play an awful lot of doubles and and won, you know, mixed doubles slam titles. So she was able to kind of, I don't know, I don't know if you want to view the doubles as like a consolation for the fact that she wasn't able to to kind of go all the way in the singles game. But I think it provides an outlet for a lot of players to kind of, 
obtain you know the peaks of success but just in doubles rather than than singles um obviously i know back in those days there was a lot more crossover between singles players and doubles players you know they they would enter both uh which is a lot more separate now yeah and there are some there are some and it's just finally kim there are some there are some current players who are on this list that we don't well, I don't know. Do you think these players will be on the list if we did this podcast in five, six years' time? Players like Madison Keys, Belinda Bencic, Elena Svitolina. Those, I mean, those for me are, yeah, on this category. I feel like Svitolina of those three, for me, is maybe the most likely to, at some point in her career, win a Grand Slam. Possibly, or she could very well be another Jankovic. And oh, okay, I don't, I don't want to think give Svit- them the tag of another player, but like, I feel like is she going to finally break through? I think, I think Svitolina will break. I think it's inevitable. <laughs> I think it's inevitable. I'm putting money on it. I think some, oh, right, for okay. me, Svitolina is inevitably going to win a, a, a slam, a slam title. Madison Keys, uh, you know, I've, if it's going to happen, it feels like it's going to happen at US Open. So. Uh, Although, that's the only... uh, yeah, I mean, Madison Keys, she has, she did reach that that US Open final, didn't she? Um, I wouldn't put it past her to win Roland Garros. I mean, I mean, in fact, like really? she, yeah, really? she, she. If okay. you look at Mad- Madison Keys, has won five titles in her career, but they've all been premier events. It's like when she does win titles, she wins pretty decent ones. Um, I, I would give Keys the edge over actually Svitolina in terms of being the next player to win out, out of those three you've just suggested. Benchic, I would say yes, but I feel like injuries plague her a lot more. So, which, we, yep. you know, we've discussed that's a, often a big factor, um, p- you know, preventing people. I mean, we did have a shout out for Eugenie Bouchard as well, who obviously reached the Wimbledon final, was it 2013 um, or 2014? I can't remember now. Um, I don't think she was going to win a slam. So, but I don't think she's, for me, she's not a player that, is going to be like a great player that should have won one. Um, but you never know. I mean, someone else mentioned that Laura Robson, if she hadn't been, have been played by injuries, it would have been very interesting to see what she could have done. Not to say that she's on this list per se, but there's a whole host of players that, you know, have been held back for various reasons that if, if you play the if and when game could, could well have been on this list as well. Could you imagine, you know, in another alternate reality, who knows, we could have had, Joe Conter and Laura Robson in the top 10 kind of <laughs> Both could be for, slam winners. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, very very interesting list. Lots of kind of different names being suggested. Listeners, uh, let us know did we miss did we miss any off? Uh yeah, contact us on social media at Passing Shot Pod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can email the show as well passingshotpod at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to us, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and a comment if you are enjoying the show. Uh, but for now, uh, I hope you've really enjoyed this episode of The Passing Shot. I think we're actually we're going to do a little little poll on Twitter just to get the get to the bottom. Who is the ultimate male? Who is the ultimate kind of female uh, greatest player never to win a slam? So watch out for that on our on our Twitter. But for now, stay safe, stay at home, and uh, yeah, we'll see you again shortly. Thank you and goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 